Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is Kiara Bridges. Kiara is a professor of law at University of California, Berkeley School of Law, where she teaches and studies the intersection of race, class, and reproductive rights and justice. Today, we're talking about Roe versus Wade and the current state of reproductive laws in America. Kiara explains why Roe versus Wade could be overturned by the Supreme Court. She talks about what this decision could mean for our constitutional rights, who it disproportionately impacts, and what we lose if we lose the ability to protect people from forced pregnancies. As Kiara explains, this is about much more than abortion access. When we look at a world without Roe v. Wade in place, we risk even more infringement on our ability to control what happens to our bodies. The reality of 2022 is that reproductive freedom remains on the line. To help raise awareness, the team at Goop is launching a new limited edition version of their infamous vagina candle called Hands Off My Vagina. Goop will donate $25 from the sale of each candle to benefit the ACLU's foundation's reproductive freedom project. They've also put together a list of resources and ways to help fight for reproductive justice. Go to goop.com slash the podcast to learn more. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Kiara Bridges. Kiara, thank you so much for taking some time with me and really being open to digging in about this really dire situation that we're in right now. And I I think... Just to dive right in, I'm, I really want to hear more about the case at hand right now, which is the Mississippi law that bans abortion at 15 weeks. What legal questions are at stake 
here and how exactly does it challenge Roe v. Wade and, and why is it so significant? Right. Yeah. So the petitioners in the Mississippi case, it's called Dobbs. They are asking the court either to overturn Roe v. Wade outright or to get rid of the viability line. And so it's important for everyone to understand, like, this is a an audacious request, right? We haven't seen a petitioner ask the court explicitly to overturn Roe v. Wade in, in generations, right? So the future of Roe v. Wade is at stake. Moreover, there's a middle position, right? So the petitioners have asked, you know, please overturn Roe v. Wade, please stop recognizing abortion as a constitutional right. And they said, but if you don't want to do that, well, then just get rid of the viability line. And so the viability line has been a part of constitutional law since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was decided. Um, and the court in that case said that it was only after fetal viability, only after the fetus was capable of sustaining life outside of the persons that a state was allowed to make abortion illegal at that time. So prior to viability, states are entirely prohibited from banning abortion. However, after viability states, it's it's within the power of the state to prohibit abortion at that time. And so what Mississippi is saying in the Dobbs case is get rid of the viability line. Let us ban abortion prior to viability. Let us ban it at 15 weeks, right? Most medical physicians or uh, healthcare providers understand that viability sort of begins around week 20 to 24, some, you know, somewhere in that range. And so Mississippi says, forget viability. Let us ban abortion at 15 weeks. Let us ban it at 12 weeks. Let us ban it at six weeks. And so really it would gut Roe v. Wade entirely if the viability line was, was uh, removed as a constitutional marker. Is the viability line upheld in states where abortion currently is under threat? So many states, so we've been witnessing a slow, you know, we call it incrementalism. Like states have been trying to chip away at the right that was established in Roe through incremental measures, through these, you know, you know, death by a thousand cuts type of thing. And so, you know, in years past, we've seen states attempt to ban abortion prior, you know, at 22 weeks. And, 20, and again, a viability is a very individual determination. You actually have to evaluate the development of the fetus in order to, the individual fetus, in order to determine whether that individual fetus is, vi- is viable. But we've seen states attempt to ban abortion at 22 weeks before some fetuses are, are going to be viable. We've seen states attempt to ban abortion at 20 weeks, again, before some fetuses are viable. So Mississippi passed this law that bans abortion at 15 weeks, which is prior to most fetal viability. And so that's why this law is a direct threat to the viability line. Why is Roe v. Wade so important? And why is it so likely to be reversed? Just for those who are kind of not maybe fully versed in, in in what's at stake, because there's there's a lot of, you know, really interesting information and polls out there of most people not really understanding the gravity. Oh, man, that's a two-part question. Let me start with why Roe v. Wade is likely to be reversed. Roe v. Wade is likely to be reversed because Trump won the election in 2016. Because of Trump's ability as the president to appoint Supreme Court, court justices, He was able to appoint three justices over the course of his four-year term. He appointed Neil Gorsuch, he appointed Brett Kavanaugh, and he appointed Amy Coney Barrett. It's important for people to understand that it's not just coincidental that Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett 
are hostile to abortion rights, that everything we know about Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and, and Barrett is that they don't believe that Roe v. Wade was properly decided in 1973. And they're very sympathetic to arguments that Roe v. Wade ought to be overturned. And it's not coincidental that Trump appointed these three people who are hostile to abortion rights. Rather, that was part of a long-term strategy by the Republican Party to pack the judiciary, if you will, and to pack the Supreme Court specifically with justices who were willing to to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so that's why Roe is likely to be overturned, because we have five to six justices now on the Supreme Court who have articulated a hostility towards Roe v. Wade and towards abortion rights. The other part of your question is why is Roe v. Wade so important? You know, we can also ask that question in terms of why is it important for people to control what happens to their bodies, right? Why is it important for people to be able to determine the content of their lives and the trajectory that their lives will take. We live in a country, well, so, so, I mean, we, so a pregnancy, there's sort of two parts to it, right? It's the actual physical event of pregnancy, and then it's the aftermath of pregnancy. In a lot of cases, for most people, that's mothering, it's parenting. Pregnancy, when you want it, it's a beautiful thing, right? Like people enjoy their pregnant bodies, even when they're not enjoying the pregnancy itself. They, when it's wanted, those in- inconveniences, burdens, pains, you, you know, all of that, that's part of pregnancy. It's just, you know, part of the bargain. It's when you don't want a pregnancy <laughs> and you're forced to carry a pregnancy, it feels like a cancer has invaded your body. It feels like a tumor is growing in your body. Um, It's excruciating, right? And so abortion is important because it's important for people to be able to avoid the torture that is carrying an unwanted pregnancy. Abortion is also important because we live in a country in which we do not support parents. Full stop. (laughs) Like we are an industrialized nation. We're one of the wealthiest nations in the country and the only country, the only industrialized nation that doesn't provide for any form of paid parental leave. And so we we don't have uh, paid childcare. We don't have adequate anything really that supports parenting. And so when you force a person to carry a pregnancy to term, you're in a lot of cases forcing them to parent in a country that doesn't support parents. So you're really consigning people to poverty. You're consigning people to deferring or giving up their dreams entirely. One other thing I want to mention is that Amy Coney Barrett in the oral arguments um, in Dobbs in December, she said, well, you know, the problem of unwanted pregnancy is solved by the ability to have your, your child adopted. So she's like, you know, you don't need abortion in order to go to school or to escape a domestic violence relationship, or you don't need abortion. You just need to be able not to parent the child that you give birth to. If you talk to people who have given up their children for adoption, that is an event that stays with them for the rest of their lives. No one understands giving up a child for an adoption as like a convenience. Few people understand giving up a child for adoption as something other than a trauma. So that is not a solution. Adoption is not a solution to the problem of unwanted pregnancy. Adoption is not and something that we can exchange for our ability to terminate unwanted pregnancies. 
Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When we think about this precedent being potentially repealed or dismantled, what do you think it means for laws around women's bodies, people's bodies going forward? What are, what are the next thresholds? Yeah, yeah. So the litigators and Dobbs in this case, as well as the, the Supreme Court justices who are, many of the Supreme Court justices who are hostile to Roe v. Wade, they like to posture like, this is the only thing that's on the table. Like abortion is just so unique. Abortion is the only procedure that involves the purposeful termination of a human life. That's what the, the lawyer in, in the oral arguments in, in Dobbs said, right? So he's like, this is just different, right? So, so nothing else is on the table when it comes to the ability to control your body. That's just so disingenuous. As a matter of constitutional law, Roe v. Wade is part of a long line of precedent dating way back to, I mean, I can go all the way back to the 1920s, but certainly to 1960s, 1970s. And this was precedent that established that you have the right to access contraception, that you have the right also to raise your child as you want to raise it. And so if Roe v. Wade is not good law, then what makes the precedent on which Roe v. Wade was based, good law. As a little like constitutional law nerd, folks should know that Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch both refused to state that they believed that those cases that allow us, that, that allow us a right to access contraception are actually good, uh, good cases, that they were actually good interpretations of the constitution. So a lot of us out here are worried that if Roe v. Wade falls, well, then the right to access contraception is next. And if the right to access contraception is next, well, then, you know, what about the right to, to, to raise your child as you see fit? There's an entire movement out here that is bringing attention to the child welfare system. Um, we call it the family regulation system. That system has systematically removed children of color from their parents, not because their parents are not good parents, but rather their parents are poor. And so the kids who, the parents who are not going to be able to raise their children as they see fit, it's, it's not Amy Coney Barrett, it's not Neil Gorsuch, it's people of color, right? It's immigrant people, it's poor people, it's people with disabilities. If Roe v. Wade falls, well, you know, not only the cases that came uh, before Roe v. Wade are, you know, their constitutionality is threatened, but what about the cases that came after Roe v. Wade? I'm talking about Lawrence v. Texas, and I'm talking about Obergefell versus Hodges. Lawrence v. Texas was the case that established that it is unconstitutional for states to criminalize consensual same-sex contact 
which means that LGBTQ rights, the rights to have sex can be, that are, will vanish um, and they can be criminalized for consensual sexual activity. And then Obergefell versus Hodges, that was a case that established that the constitution protects the ability of a person to marry someone of the same sex. That the, the, the continued legitimacy of that case called into question if Roe v. Wade falls. It's saying that Lawrence and Obergefell saying, saying that, you know, the ability to engage in sex without fear of criminal punishment and the ability to marry someone of the same sex, like saying that those those rights are, are called into question by the fall of Roe v. Wade is not pure hypothetical, just, you know, guessing. Rather, the author, Texas's, you know, restrictive abortion law explicitly said that if Roe v. Wade falls, Lawrence and Obergefell are on questionable constitutional grounds. So this is part um, a well thought out, well funded campaign to, to, to diminish and demolish the rights that are so important to vulnerable people. And so when we look at the actual situation that's before us, not just only looking at abortion access, we're also looking at a world without Roe v. Wade in this country being a place where there are all types of infringement upon our bodily autonomy, whether you are able to bear a child or not. I think it's important for everyone to keep in mind that, you know, in a world where we don't have a constitutional right to, to terminate a pregnancy, it's also a world that we don't have a constitutional right to, to become pregnant and to carry that pregnancy to term, right? And so we're talking about the possibility that forced sterilization would be inflicted on vulnerable people. A couple of years ago, right, I, I would like to believe that a lot of people were up in arms about the report that in an ICE detention center in Georgia, a physician was sterilizing detainees without their consent. We should expect the proliferation of those practices, right? We should expect that people, vulnerable people, marginalized people will find themselves unable to bear children because they've been non-consensually sterilized in a world in which we don't have a constitutional right against that very practice. Yeah, so I think so I think that we all should be terrified, right? Like even even if you uh, don't understand the gravity of the of of the abortion right, I think that one should be worried about what the, the sort of fallout um, is from losing that right, and that's the ability again just to control what happens to your body. What is your what is your life going to look like, right? Like what can you dream of and what can you achieve, right? All of those things hinge on the continued protection of, of these of these rights. How does the Mississippi law compare with the Texas abortion law, SBA, which bans abortions once one, the one heartbeat? The Mississippi ban is more consistent with what we have seen states, the laws that we've seen states pass in order to whittle away at the at the right that um, Supreme Court established in Roe v. Wade. Like it's just a it's just a, a regular old abortion law that bans abortion at a particular time and it gives the opportunity for the court 
to narrow the right that was articulated in Russell. So it's kind of like a typical law in that in that sense. It's atypical in the sense that this is the first time, again, like I said, in a generation that we've seen a petitioner or a lawyer ask the court to, to explicitly overturn Roe v. Wade. We've, they've been asking the court to overturn Roe v. Wade implicitly, right, by by whittling, whittling away at the right that Roe v. Wade articulated. Texas is SBA. It's just such an unusual law. So first of all, it bans abortion uh, at, at six weeks, right, before most people know that they're pregnant. They said that's when you can hear a fetal heartbeat. It sort of plays at the emotions, right? Like, oh, the fetus's heart is beating. Even though if you ask obstetricians, they don't call it a heartbeat at all. They call it heart tones. So it, it, ban- it bans abortions at six weeks. But what makes uh, Texas's law atypical and weird and awful is that it's it's sort of the procedural mechanisms that were built into the law to to disallow or to to prevent the federal judiciary from federal courts from even striking down the law in the first instance. So that was, that's the enforcement mechanism. So instead of allowing a state actor to enforce this ban, a state actor like the attorney general or like, you know, the head of health and human services of the state, instead of allowing a state actor to enforce this ban on abortion after six weeks, it allows private actors to sue to get $10,000 every time they, they find someone who has performed an abortion or aided and assisted someone in getting an abortion after six weeks. And so that weird sort of procedural quirk, the fact that it's enforced by private actors has made it difficult for folks, providers, you know, individuals to challenge the law. And that's why the law is in effect today, you know, at, at the time that we're recording, even though it is a patently unconstitutional law, it's patently inconsistent with Roe v. Wade. You know, so thinking about this idea of constitutionality, why is abortion a constitutional right? So in constitutional law, we call certain, the most important rights that we have fundamental rights. And, you know, for example, we have a fundamental right to terminate pregnancy. We have a fundamental right to bear a child. We have a fundamental right to parent our children, so on and so forth. Why did the Supreme Court interpret the Constitution in 1973 um, as protecting a fundamental right to terminate a pregnancy? Back then, we had seven Supreme Court justices. Again, there was a seven to two decision. I think it's so important for people to realize that it's only recently um, that we've seen such staunch opposition to abortion rights on the Supreme Court. So back in 1973, it was a seven to seven justices thought that it was so important, a fundamental right to, to terminate a pregnancy. And it's simply because they recognized just how important the ability to terminate a pregnancy was to people's to people's lives. And again, it was it was part of a long line of cases that came before that recognized the importance of people to access contraception, to raise their children, so on and so forth. I mean, I wanted to mention that piece because I think it's important for people to recognize that Roe v. Wade wasn't just like came out of nowhere. Again, it was part of like a long line of cases that led to that to that decision. But I also wanted to mention how incredibly terrifying it is for a state to be able to force people to bear children, right? It's very dystopian, right? It's very handmade tale. A state that has the power to, to make somebody become pregnant, to make somebody carry that pregnancy to term, to make someone parent. 
that's a terrifying state. And so the court and Roe v. Wade recognized how terrifying it is for a state to have that kind of power. So anyone who's listening to this and who's enraged or has a feeling of deep despair and not knowing what can they do, where do we where do we start? Because in my opinion, as someone that's been working in reproductive justice for many years, this is not a, you know, a quarterly fight. It's really a lifelong dedication to try to see this situation move from this instability to something that is stable and something that is is like irrefutable right so really curious about how where do we start so you know as a a lawyer i i believe in changing law i think law is important and so vote often vote in every election that you can which you know reminds me to remind everybody that our voting rights are under attack So we, so we have to protect our very democratic institutions, right? Like Texas is in the business of disenfranchising hundreds of thousands, if not millions of voters in the state. So we have to protect our democratic institutions and then we have to vote. But I agree with you that this problem goes beyond like just getting a legislator, you know, into office who understands the importance of abortion and the importance of, you know, the panoply of of rights that fall within the the reproductive justice um, framework. And so in addition to being a lawyer, I'm also an anthropologist. And so I understand the importance of culture. And I think that we need to work on creating a culture that values the lives of people with the capacity for pregnancy. (laughs) I think we need to work hard on, on creating a culture that understands a cis woman's destiny is not motherhood. I think that we need to create a culture that respects that people with the capacity for pregnancy know what's best for them. <laughs> like they know what's best for, for their lives, for their children's lives. A lot of people who have abort, most people who have abortion have children already. <laughs> so like people are making these decisions because it's not only what's best for them, but what's best for their family. So like we need to trust them, right? So I think that we need to work towards building a culture where we trust women, we trust people with the capacity for pregnancy, and where we're also terrified again of a state that would decide what you know individual citizens, individual people do with the most intimate aspects of their lives and their bodies. I deeply agree with that and the culture component is so is so critical to this and i think really just this this idea that a cis woman's destiny is not motherhood is so potent beyond voting what else can people do with their time with their dollars where can people be supporting to make sure that from a legislative capacity from a boots on the ground capacity abortion legislation is getting the, the the support it needs. We have a bill um, that was passed in the, um, that passed the House uh, of Representatives that would codify the rights that Roe articulated. It would codify it into federal law. So that means that we wouldn't need to depend on the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution as protecting um, the right to an abortion. We would have a federal statute that protects abortion rights. So again, it passed the House 
woot woot, and now it's sitting in the Senate. Um, it's very unlikely to pass the Senate because of the filibuster, because although we have a Democratic majority, we have a couple of Democrats who appear to be unsympathetic to liberal causes. So vote. <laughs> um, we, need to, we, need, we need to get more Democrats in office in the Senate and in, 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 in the House of Representatives in order to, to get um, that legislation passed, as well as other legislation that's just good for people. We need to end the filibuster. Beyond the federal government, I want to mention just how important it is for people to have financial assistance when it comes to accessing abortion. So after Texas passed SB8, you know, abortions after six weeks have not been performed in Texas. So most Texans um, who have been able to terminate a pregnancy have been terminating their pregnancies in Kansas and in Oklahoma, right? They've been traveling hundreds of miles in order to get to a state that, uh, in which they can access abortion. So they need to travel there. They need to get childcare, because again, a lot of folks have kids um, who are terminating their pregnancies. They need to take time off of work. They might need, even need to rent, you know, or, or you know, stay in a hotel because the, the length of the trip is so long that they can't just travel from home to Oklahoma and back in the same day. So financial assistance is, is going to be key for folks, you know, poor people, marginalized people, people with disabilities, young people, undocumented people. So it, I think that listeners should consider uh, donating to abortion funds who are, you know, they're helping people cover the cost of the procedure, as well as the expenses associated with accessing the procedure. So that's something that we could do today. <laughs> and we can continue to do, even if Roe v. Wade remains good law, even if the court decides not to strike it down and dab, abortion funds are just vital in helping marginalized people um, access this, this procedure, which is so key to their to their abilities to control, you know, what happens to them in, in their lives and their bodies. While very few of us uh, can control, you know, how the Supreme Court decides Dobbs, you know, come June of, of this year, all of us can do something to to make sure that the fallout from that decision doesn't doesn't kill people, right? It doesn't devastate people. So we all can do something to to at least diminish some of the harms that the Supreme Court is willing to inflict on people. Thanks for listening to my chat with Kiara Bridges. For more on reproductive justice and resources, go to goop.com slash the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.